I'm Theo. And I'm Juliet. And this is Apologies Accepted. We offer an entertaining look at some of the big issues in history by examining public apologies of the famous and infamous. We're looking at politicians, serial killers, actors, and you. Send us a public apology you would like to make, and we'll read it on the air and give you a chance to redeem yourself or just get some guilt off your shoulders. We're here for you. Once a week, maybe more if you're really, really sorry. I am not Juliet. And I'm not Theo, for once. You sound so and happy is... about that. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Apologies Accepted, the podcast. The podcast. Hooray. Everybody, Thanks. we're back, back, and you're back, too. Thank you, subscribers, for uh, listening to our little <laughs> show. We couldn't be more have... happy, surprised, and delighted that... Um, there are repeat listeners. That we have 273 downloads. Yay! <laughs> We're amazed, actually. I was just saying that, you know, can you believe that 273 strangers have listened to us? Or at least some percentage of 273 that's greater than zero. <laughs> so it's kind actually, of I would kind almost prefer zero. Because I listen to <laughs> some of the shows so no and I'm like, oh, God, I said that out loud in the public square. But it's fun. It's all all in good fun. It's comedy. It's a comedy podcast. It is totally, absolutely fun. (laughs) I I enjoy the heck out of this. Even if no one laughs but us. (laughs) So, okay, what are we going to talk about today? Oh, no, how was your week? Oh, well. How are you? (laughs) Let's let's talk about you first. Do we ever stop talking about me? That's that's the question I have asked. Um, I'm great. It's been a nice week. It's been a nice nice everything. Um, yeah, we've got some stuff going on with that, uh, nightclub across the street from us that, um, they've hired a new manager. And so the new manager doesn't know anything about the murder that happened in October or the noise issues or the fact that there are residents here. So, um, yeah, it's really started to kick up, which weirdly has activated a lot of, this is the thing I didn't I don't think I really understand about trauma intellectually understand about trauma um yeah but this does not feel very comedic um it's just, but it's important it's kicked people up go a, through stuff so yeah and so you go through stuff and then and mind you that this this incident that happened didn't happen to me it just happened on my street. He didn't street. get murdered. I yeah, didn't get murdered. And, and it wasn't a family member of mine and, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and all of that. But still, um, you know, trauma's trauma. Well, it's just, it's weird because I thought that I was, I'm going to say done with it, but, you know, just that uh, like, oh, okay, yeah, that thing happened. And, oh, and I had some weird bad. emotional reactions to it that I didn't anticipate. And yeah. going through it was was odd but odd in a interesting way because i i'm not only a participant in my life i'm an observer of my life as well Mm -hmm. right why did i do this thing why what do i feel about this thing that happened over here right so um so yeah i've had a couple of uh moments where the news just makes me break down and cry for half a second it's like this little sob that's caught in the throat (laughs) You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. And so watching Rashida Tlaib or AOC read statements on the floor about their uh, their experience of the insurrection um, 
just heartbreaking, but also weirdly like almost like um, the universe reached its finger out and poked me specifically. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so a good week. <laughs> sounds yeah. great. Yeah. It sounds <laughs> it's, sounds it's, awesome. It sounds great. But I mean, you know, in full disclosure, yeah, that's, that's kind of what's been going on. And I would say that's the big headliner thing for me. What about you? How's yeah. your week? Yeah. Uh, not too bad. Um, it's uh, the week before this week was a bad week. I had a bad week. I have depression and I had a lot of depression that week, but, um, and anxiety, tons of anxiety. But this week has been better, and I've gotten. And let me tell everyone about my drugs. I've got a new prescription for something called Buspar, which is an anti-anxiety medication that I would take every day to um, to pre- not prevent anxiety, but to deal with it, as opposed to, to promote the, it. Um, promote it, as opposed to the Ativan that I take when I'm anxious, which is every freaking day. But I'm not supposed to take it every day. So, so this is better, um, and there's no chance of becoming addicted to it, which is nice. So as soon as Costco sorts out their lives, I'll get a prescription in the mail. And that'll be good. All my problems will be solved. Um, I'm also, right? Yeah. I'm also interviewing for a job at the place where I've been consulting for a year and a half now. So that's good. Um, we had a little misunderstanding with HR when they told me how much they w- wanted to pay me. And I laughed at them. They found so, out you were a woman and decreased your salary accordingly probably yeah probably and and then i was like well that's an interesting number but here's the number i'm looking at and then they said well we're sorry we can't meet your needs see you later without even talking to the hiring manager who really wants to hire me so i contacted the hiring manager and i was like here's the email i got from hr i'm a little confused and he sorted it uh, he sorted it all out and we have come to an agreement on the salary but that was a little moment of sort of confusion and dismay, I would say. Um, but I mean, of course, I think, you know, it's because I'm a woman that when I negotiated my salary, they were like, oh, screw you, you're not worth it. But how do you ever know? That's the hard thing. Like, you know, how do I know that a man in my position would not have had the same reaction? Reaction or know. the same salary from offer? The same reaction from HR of saying, you know, um, well, both. First, the initial salary offer, which I think was really lowball, and the um, and the response to my asking for more money, which was like goodbye. I've never had a response wow. to a, a counter offer be goodbye before. I've never had that either. Uh, not so. that I've made a lot of counter offers because usually I'm like, oh my god, you want to hire me? Great, yeah, please. <laughs> well, I'm trying. Ironically, I'm trying to be better about that because I realize that women make less money than men, and that usually um, there are issues with them trying to counter offer and, and bargain up. So I've been trying to do that, and it's done very, very. I'm making a lot more money now as a result of it, but, um, but it's scary every time. So I guess inevitably at some point I would come to something like this where this would happen, but it's a given in HR that, um, how you approach your salary negotiation is how you will approach your job. And so that's really part of the hiring criteria. I have friends Uh who, um, manage companies and, manage HR departments and they might have a candidate that they really want to bring in for a position and sure. they do. And then that person plays real hardball um, yeah. with numbers. And yeah. my friends who do the hiring, well, they don't do the hiring, but my friends who, who run right. their companies will say, yeah, he came in real high and won't back down. And 
I like that. And I'm, because, wow. you know, that's showing gumption or whatever, right? And, right. And uh, yeah, it's, I'm going to say, I see the logic in that. If somebody right. folds immediately, right. how are you going to manage 10 other people if an right. issue comes up, right? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what I would have expected. That's what I did expect. I expected them to come in low and, and expect me to negotiate up. So that's what I did. And, and and not just because of that, but because I know that I'm worth more money than what they initially offered me. So even with the bonus and the stocks and all the other stuff they're so kindly going to give me if I if they hire me. <laughs> so anyway, so that was my week. Um, I think that's all that happened. I feel like something else happened, but I don't know what it could possibly have been. So... Uh, it was a basket of cookies that fell from the sky straight into your <laughs> arms, but you were overcome with happiness and you forgot all about it. It's been that kind of a great week. <laughs> totally. I'm sure it was. So what are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about um, Stanford, higher education, and um, appreciation of employees. Isn't that, isn't oh, that an interesting tie-in to your experience with this yeah. negotiation and being <laughs> undervalued? Um, I didn't protest, but well, you nobody kind from of my did. company listens to this podcast. I mean, you well, didn't go out yeah, on the street with a picket sign, which would have been awesome. <laughs> you should have done that. <laughs> I don't think they would have hired me after that. <laughs> they would have made you president of this company. Um, oh, my God. They but, have a good president, actually, a good CEO, so I wouldn't want to replace him. Who oh, wants you that have kind of to job say anyway? That. <laughs> it's true. One day when I've forgotten that I've said these things about this company, I'll tell you who I work for probably on this podcast, and then people will put it together and be like, oh, my God. <laughs> you'll forget it's supposed to be a secret, and you'll mention it later on in this very episode. So, it, Oh, probably, yeah. yeah. And then everyone will be like, you know, Dear Recycling Company, Inc., your person has been on the radio talking about how crappy you are. No, I really like them. They're a good company. Um, we had a misunderstanding at the end. So, okay, so let's talk about Stanford. Uh, <laughs> yes, let's hear this uh, um, situation and this apology. Yeah, on Friday, December 18th, Stanford Medicine was forced to apologize for the huge PR and ethical fiasco that was its COVID-19 vaccine distribution plan, which actually left out most of the doctors and frontline workers who come into closest contact with COVID-19 patients, unfortunately. Um, instead, administrators and senior physicians who often work from home and are not in contact with patients were initially slotted to receive these vaccines. This resulted in a big protest at Stanford Hospital of residents who represented all frontline workers, including nurses, food staff, and the emergency department, which I was really impressed by. Um, I don't have a very high opinion of Stanford. I mean, I, we'll talk about that more later. I think um, academically, I think they're, they're, they're good, um, but some of the other aspects are not so great. Uh, but anyway, um, according to the LA Times, they held this protest outside a door where the hospital was staging a photo opportunity for journalists covering the initial vaccinations. So they got a lot of publicity. Uh, you probably heard about it. Everyone probably heard about this protest. Um, the reason that they were protesting um, more in, in more detail was that only seven of 1,350 residents were in the first round of 5,000 vaccine doses. So, I mean, that's tiny. That's uh, These residents are the people who are seeing the COVID-19 patients for the most part, residents and, and house staff. And only seven of them were in the first round of, of vaccine doses. So of the 1,300 frontline workers who actively hold the hands of COVID patients, 
who administer medication to COVID patients, who talk to COVID patients, only seven of them. Yeah. And I'm bad at math, which I <laughs> will argue is an inexact science anyway. So you don't have to be good at math. But um, that's a, like real a percent, small percentage. Five percent or something. <laughs> Obviously, I'm point bad at math oh, too. Oh, oh, oh. I know there's a seven in it because there's seven of them. <laughs> It's a small percentage, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the chief residents actually sent a letter to Stanford Health leadership, and they said, in part, many of us know senior faculty who have worked from home since the pandemic began in March 2020 with no in-person patient responsibilities who were selected for vaccination. In the meantime, we residents and fellows strap on N95 masks for the 10th month of this pandemic without a transparent and clear plan for our protection in place. While leadership is pointing to an error in an algorithm meant to ensure equity and justice, our understanding is this error was identified on Tuesday and a decision was made not to revise the vaccine allocation scheme before its release today. So Stanford had outlined its vaccination rollout plan earlier that week, um, claiming that vaccines would be available starting Friday and would be given first to healthcare workers who, quote, provide direct care and service to patients, those who are at the highest risk of being exposed to COVID-19, and those who have an elevated risk of complications from the disease. And they did, um, as I mentioned, they did defend themselves by saying a very complex algorithm was at fault. So at this point, let's think a little bit about what Stanford is, the reputation of Stanford, who the residents are, that sort of thing. Let's do that. But let's take a quick moment just to look at some of that bullshit language, a complex algorithm. It's so complex. Oh, we'll talk more about that algorithm. Oh, Did good. You see I it? can't wait. No, I no. no. Oh, I'll tell you. Oh. I'll tell you how complex this algorithm is. <laughs> I didn't even think about that because when I was uh, well, so so what I know about Stanford as a university, right, um, is basically the Stanford Prison Experiment and uh, some of the cleanup around the findings of that experiment that have taken place over time. And, and it, you know, not to, not to uh, get into that, but... Did you listen to, speaking of getting into that, did you listen to, was it you're wrong about, did a Stanford prison experiment? Yes, that's where I learned that the Stanford prison experiment has been sort of revisited. The findings and the yeah. results of that have, have sort of been yeah. revisited. And that... Okay. It's a. It's not what I always thought it was, which was. Um, yeah. You know, for those for those who don't know, the Stanford Prison Experiment was a an idea that was born in the psychology department at Stanford, and they yeah, took a I group so. of students and just sort of randomly divided them up into prison guards and prisoners. And over the course of, I think it was a weekend, but maybe it was a period of a week, uh, the guards became increasingly belligerent and uh, authoritarian. And so it was mm -hmm. kind of like, oh, our discovery is that people are assholes if you <laughs> give them power. Um, yeah, yeah. But, so aside, I mean, aside from that, that was sort of all I ever really knew or thought about Stanford. Um, when I moved to California, I don't think I'd ever heard of Stanford. Um, my family was very East Coast, and so, to me, a university was Harvard, Yale, Princeton. When we moved to North Carolina, I learned about Duke University and that Duke thought that it was an important university. And I kind of laughed at the tender mm -hmm. age of 13. Like, oh, come on, mm -hmm. everybody knows real schools, Harvard. Um, who's mm -hmm. ever heard of Duke? But, 
Yeah, so that kind of woke up this, uh, woke up, oh, Jesus Christ, I'm so dumb. Um, but I didn't go to Stanford. <laughs> um, so didn't know much about it. And moving to California, learned that Stanford considered itself to be a very important university. And to quote my friend Gail, oh yeah, Stanford is the shit. So <laughs> in that, um, I learned a little bit about Stanford. Um I wanted to know, like, what is this university? What makes it important? Um, who are these medical students? How hard is it to get into Stanford Med, et cetera? And um, let's start with an origin. And like all origin stories, it begins with a myth. So here's the story. Mm. A lady in a faded gingham dress and her husband dressed in homespun threadbare suit stepped off the train in Boston and walked timidly without an appointment into the president's outer office. This would be the president of Harvard University, a real school. <laughs> the secretary could tell in a moment that such backwoods country hicks had no business at Harvard and probably didn't even deserve to be uh, in Cambridge. She frowned. We want to see the president, the man said softly. He'll be busy all day, the secretary snapped. We'll wait, the lady <laughs> replied. Um, and basically, it goes on. This is from an email that circulated in the late 90s. And basically, the story in this email goes on to say that this man and his wife waited for hours and hours, and, and they just didn't leave, and they were very humble, and that uh, people explained to them that you know the president of the university is a very important man and can't see you, but... Eventually, the president does see the president of Harvard does see this couple and um, we'll pick up with the lady told him we had a son that attended Harvard for one year. He loved Harvard. He was happy here. But about a year ago, he was accidentally killed. And my husband and I would like to erect a memorial to him somewhere on campus. The president mm. wasn't touched. He was shocked. <laughs> Madam, he said gruffly. We can't put up a statue for every person who attended Harvard and died. If we did, this place would look like a cemetery. Oh, no. <laughs> right? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> oh, no, the lady explained quickly. We want to erect a statue. We don't want to erect a statue. We thought we would like to give a building to Harvard. The president <laughs> rolled his eyes. He glanced at the gingham dress and the homespun suit. And then he exclaimed, a building? Do you have any earthly idea how much a building costs? We have over $7.5 million in the physical plant at Harvard. Meaning, for those who weren't aware of this, that all the buildings in Harvard cost $7.5 million. Like the whole campus, right? Um, for a moment, the lady was silent. The president was pleased. He could get rid of them now. And the lady turned to her husband and said quietly, is that all it costs to start a university? Why don't we just start our own? <laughs> her husband nodded. The president's face wilted in confusion and bewilderment. And Mr. and Mrs. Leland Stanford walked away, traveling to Palo Alto, where they established a university that bears her son's name. So, Goodness. yeah. Um, so that's an email that was going out in, in the 90s. And what I... What I like about that is there's a lot of us versus them, right? There's mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. humble people taking on the elitist structure. It's also West Coast versus East Coast. Holla. Yeah. Um, I can't believe I did that. We were going <laughs> to beep that out. God, I'm so embarrassed. No, I'm such a it's 90s great. person. Jesus. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so there's this idea of 
uh, California never being as good as the East Coast, right? Um, That's where um, the real intellectualism is. That's where real world stuff, that's where New York is. That's the financial capital of the world. You know, the West Coast is Yeah, that's where everything started. It's where all the history Everything happens, right. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, so so there's a lot of that in there. Okay, so some of this email uh, from the late 90s is actually based on a true event. And it's actually a combination of true two true events. So in the late 90s, uh, two universities in Scotland got a phone call from America. And a guy named William Lindsay, who lived in Vegas, said that he wanted to give some money to one of the schools. Um, I don't know why he wanted to give money to schools in Scotland, uh, but he did. And the first school said, uh, okay, yeah, no, and basically hung up on him. And Hmm. uh, his next call, which was to Glasgow University, was met Mm -hmm. with a warmer reception. And in March 2000, that school received a check for 1.2 million pounds, enough Mm -hmm. to endow professorship in Lindsay's name. Right? So, great. I didn't look any further into that. But here's what actually did lead to the founding of Stanford and this uh, email from the 90s, which is like, Oh, Harvard was mean to the Stanfords, and that's why they left and founded their own school. And uh, Harvard's terrible. So you know, when I think um, of Stanford, the absolute last adjective that comes to mind is humble. Ah, uh, just from my experience with Stanford. You have way more. I only <laughs> I dated one Stanford grad, and that's kind of my experience with Stanford. And I'm going to say it was all right. Um, <laughs> Okay, so basically, when railroad magnate and former California governor Leland Stanford and his wife, Jane Lathrop Stanford, lost their only child, Leland Jr., age 15, to typhoid in 1884, uh, the family was in Italy, and and their son contracted typhoid fever, um, which to me is kind of interesting because uh, uh, here we have covid and people right. being excluded from vaccinations, and their son died from a communicable a disease. Um, okay, right. so the, they thought their son was recovering, but he didn't. He died in Florence, and uh, his and Mr. Stanford took Mrs. Stanford's hand and said, "The children of California shall be our children." Uh, and that was the real beginning of Stanford University. So they lost mm-hmm. their their 15-year-old son and wanted to create a, a monument to him. Um, and mm-hmm. basically, that was the, the founding of the university. So um, they didn't just run out and throw a couple of million dollars into the wind and it turned into buildings. They went and they visited Cornell, Yale, Harvard, and the Massachusetts Institute. Oh my gosh, Matt, MIT. Massachusetts Institute of Technology. <laughs> <Of> technology. <laughs> <laughs> MIT, yeah, everybody. That one. That's why they call it MIT. Um, <laughs> so they did meet with the president of Harvard and they talked about ideas around what is a university, um, what does higher education look like, etc. And they did go back and, and found their own. But, you know, they never had the intention of giving money to Harvard University. They were never snubbed by Harvard. Exactly. No, the president of Harvard met with them and was like, hey, you guys, you want to start your own university in California? 
Ha ha ha. Knock yourselves out. Sure. <laughs> Here's what it means to be higher education. Um, and let's see. So that essentially was uh, was the founding, the real founding. And then uh, let's see here. Um, so they settled on creating a great university, one that from the outset was untraditional, co-educational in a time when most mm-hmm. were all male, non-denominational, uh, when most were associated with a religious organization, uh, practical, producing cultured and useful citizens, when most were only concerned with uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And so from the onset, Stanford wanted to set itself apart. Um, so mm. the family built or the parents built a university and donated uh, their large fortune, which included over 8,000 acres in Palo Alto. Um, and the campus is located within the traditional territory of the Mawakama Alone tribe. Do you know how to say that? Have you learned that living in San Francisco? I think it's... I- I think it's Ohlone, but I don't actually know. Let me look it up while you talk. I think you're probably right. Um, I listened to a YouTube pronunciation like five times, and that was yesterday. Uh, (laughs) For sure, it's it's off. Um, Okay, let's see here. And so uh, the school opened in 1891. Uh, The Stanfords and the founding president aimed for their uh, university to not only produce culture and useful graduates, uh, they wanted to teach both liberal arts and technology and engineering at a time when technology and engineering was very important in America. We were talking just after the the era of great railroad uh, fortunes having been made. Uh, let's see here. So uh, Stanford was originally called the Cornell of the West because the Stanfords collected a lot of professors from Cornell University and brought them over Uh, to Palo Alto to teach this new, you know, method, not new method of education, but this new idea behind higher education. Um, And now, okay, so that's the founding of Stanford couple of interesting points. It was the first school to ever raise more than a billion dollars in a year. And as of 2020, October 2020, uh, Stanford has produced 84 Nobel laureates. Nobel. Oh, God, don't read from paper, everybody. (laughs) You should listen. If you have a podcast, you should know what you're talking about before you turn on that microphone. Theo. That's right. You should know how to pronounce Nobel. Uh, Interesting. I thought this was rather telling. Of those 84 uh, awards, 16 were in medicine and 27 are in economics. So I wonder where the emphasis is in education in in Harvard. Um, And then Stanford is noted for its entrepreneurship, and it's one of the most successful universities in attracting funding for startups. Uh, Stanford alumni have founded... A ton of companies, and if you take all those companies and combine them together, that would equal $2.7 trillion in annual revenue. And all of those companies created by Stanford grads have generated more than 5.4 million jobs as of 2011, uh, making it roughly the equivalent of the seventh largest economy in the world. Uh, let's see. Stanford is the alma mater of one president, Herbert Hoover. Mwah, mwah. <laughs> 74 living billionaires and 17 astronauts 
So cool. Nice. It's the leading producer of Fulbright Scholars, Marshall Scholars, Rhodes Scholars, and members of the United States Congress. And some famous attendees are, and you might recognize one of these names. So John Steinbeck, who was there on and off and never received a degree, but... Never he heard of him. Was attended. He was attended. Yeah. He was attended. Never heard of him. Um, I only went to UT. That's why my English is so bad. Uh, JFK dropped out of the MBA program in 1942. Doris Fisher. I was like, who the fuck is she? She founded Gap. Uh, oh. Along with her husband, but she is the co-founder of Gap. Sandra Day O'Connor, Sigourney Weaver, Sally Ride, my girlfriend, Rachel Maddow. My other girlfriend, Reese Witherspoon. Oh, yay. Reese, who went yay, there in the mid-90s and is currently yay. on leave. <laughs> Officially. Maybe one day they'll give her an honorary degree. To sort of get it over with. <laughs> Maybe she one probably doesn't need that degree at this point. She could buy Stanford. Um, yeah. And then uh, Chelsea Clinton. All right, cool. Oh, cool. So, uh, so famous people, famous school... Um, and let's see, that got me uh, curious about like, okay, what's this med school? Because given my my bias, prejudice around higher education, um, I what am what am I saying here? Um, my godfather uh, graduated from Yale, and and he taught at Yale for a few years. And he had a lot of opinions and a lot of ideas about mm -hmm. schools, which I absorbed. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of those was that Harvard is the best. Um, and yes, he did go to Yale, but for some reason, even he sort of always wanted to be a Harvard guy. Um, okay, so hooray for me. The med school acceptance rate at Stanford is 2.3%. At Harvard, it's 3.7%, and at John Hopkins, it's 7%. Uh, in Stanford, 2018, uh, the, the admission GPA requirement was 3.83, and the, an MCAT score of 519. Um, so let's see, that's a bunch of numbers, but basically, so the GPA to get into med school, 3.8, we'll call it, the MCAT 519. At Harvard, it's 3.9, MCAT 519. So real close. Yale, 3.9, MCAT 521. Yale, we think a lot of ourselves. <laughs> um, at Duke University, it's 3.88 and an MCAT of 519. And then John Hopkins, 3.8, MCAT 518. Okay, so, so you've got to be really smart and accomplished to get into Stanford. You are, Harvard's competing for you. Yale's competing for you. If you are, if, if, what am I, if you're producing numbers like this, we'll just say that. Okay. And then not according <laughs> to my godfather, but according to USA Today, who does a lot of like top universities, top this, top that, right? The top uh, medical schools in order Harvard, number one, John Hopkins, number two, University of Pennsylvania, number three, and Stanford, number four. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I went onto the website because, uh, great. So that tells me, like, what does it mean to be a resident at Stanford University? What do you have to go through to get there? They don't accept just anybody. You know, who are you as a person? And uh, I noticed that on the recruitment website 
for med school. Uh, they have a current video with students wearing masks, right? And in this recruitment video, uh, the students talk a lot about, or really the doctors, uh, because you know these are residents, uh, talk a lot about how being a part of the program connects you with other residents and that you're a family. There's a lot of talk about the intellectual um, environment at the school or in the uh, in the medical program, but there's equally as much talk about being part of a family. Uh, and so I think there we could say that's what Stanford is. That's kind of uh, what it takes to become a med school student and what is this environment that the med residents find themselves in uh, with the COVID vaccine or not being vaccinated? So you have a family of residents who are highly accomplished, highly educated, takes a lot to get in there. They could have gone to a lot of other schools, but they chose Stanford. Um, or, you know, Stanford was in their top four. Um, and they are working with a highly contagious disease. And they discover the university doesn't value them. It doesn't value them or their uh, lives. Because, I hey, see. everybody, we have 5,000 doses of this vaccine. And... right. We've got seven for you seven guys. Seven for you guys. <laughs> and again, admittedly bad at math, but I think that's 4,993 other vaccines for other people. Yeah. And some of those other people, well, they're older and older yeah. people need to be protected because older people are more greatly are more at susceptible risk. susceptible to the virus. Yeah. Totally. Right. And those older people are all working from home, wearing masks. Right. Right. Like me. Earning some doing money all day. Not. Yeah. Earning a lot more money than the residents. They can have a their groceries the delivered. Residents. They can blah, blah, blah. So they're they're kind of insulated. So everything you said about the Stanford students and what it takes to get into Stanford and the quality of the students is true from my experience. And I used to work at a university, a, a graduate university here in San Francisco, which shall not be named. Um, and I worked for was it a Harvard? medical department. No. <laughs> and I worked for a medical department, which also shall not be named. But one of my jobs was to um, assist with the um, hiring of the residents every year. And we always had people come from Stanford who wanted to, because this, this school that I'm mentioning is a good school. And um, Shut up. I, I, How do I know you? That is cool. I don't know. Your job was, was cool. to... Hire residents? No, I didn't hire the residents. I just oh. assisted in the hiring process. Oh, okay. That's how I know you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. I wasn't listening. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> so anyway, so we would have these people come for their interviews, and and I would you know chat them up because part of the interview process they wanted to know actually they wanted to know how they treated. I was a secretary at the time, and they wanted to. To know how they would treat the secretaries and invariably okay not invariably okay invariably the biggest assholes were from stanford 
and they always thought they were they were they were completely full of themselves. Um, not all of them. Some of the people that came from Stanford were were wonderful people that I became friends with, and and were just charming and uh, delightful, excellent doctors. I can't say enough good things about them. But the biggest assholes were almost always from Stanford. And when I got into business, um, I got outside of the world of academia and into the business world, I found the same thing to be true when I was actually hiring people, that the people who were the big, not that Stanford people are assholes, but the biggest assholes were from Stanford. (laughs) Nice, that good clarification there, yes. Yeah, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't have vaccines because that's not at all where I'm going with this, but... um, but... (laughs) I wasn't even going, I didn't even connect those... (laughs) <laughs> no, but you know what? That's so good, it's proof it's... that everybody at Stanford is, oh God, we're going to get so much hate mail. <laughs> I'm not even going to finish that sentence. Right, keep keep going. It's proof good. of nothing. So, so the people at Stanford, not just the medical school, but Stanford in general are incredibly intelligent for the most part, um, are probably very nice people um, for the most part. Not always though. Um, but they are certainly familiar uh, with algorithms. So not just the the residents, but the uh, the faculty. They're they supposed to be. Is they know how to use algorithms, um, and they blamed an algorithm for the issue that caused the um, the protest because only seven out of thirteen hundred and forty nine vaccines were going to house staff. So um, not only was it an algorithm at fault, but it was, uh, someone there said, a very complex algorithm. So I looked into this algorithm. So complex. I don't know. Tell me, show me, show me, show me. Let me tell you. I can't show you because this is a podcast and not a video cast. (laughs) Tell me, tell me, tell me. I'll tell you. So (laughs) this very complex algorithm was not, as you would imagine, a complex machine learning algorithm, something that's, that's sometimes called a black box. But, but it's a rules-based formula for calculating who would get the vaccine first. And I looked up an article in Technology Review, which uh, describes it as considering three categories, employee-based variables, which have to do with age, job-based variables, the job that you do, and guidelines from the California Department of Public Health. So for each category, you got a certain number of points, and presumably the higher your score, the higher your priority in line. So basically... Um, the algorithm, which the uh, technology review article had a picture of, basically a PowerPoint slide with a couple of circles and some arrows and a couple boxes. That's it. Um, it's easy for anyone to understand. It's like a workflow, basically. Um, it's not complex at all. And uh, Do you think it was so complex that you didn't understand it? No. Are you sure? <laughs> well, well, that's possible. It is so it's so complex that it appeared to be simple. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> it was not for one as dumb as I to comprehend. <laughs> but um, but technology review did comprehend it and and said that basically the algorithm ended up giving priority to the oldest staff and the youngest staff, which disadvantages the residents and the house staff who are generally in the middle of the age range. So the algorithm algorithm also did not really account for exposure to patients with COVID-19. So you'd think that would be the first thing that they would check uh, when they're creating and reviewing this algorithm is to, to, how, what about people who are exposed to COVID-19? Well, no, um, you know, this, this human created algorithm was presumably reviewed by additional human beings other than the ones who created it. I mean, I'm imagining in my head that some low level person created this algorithm and 
15 people reviewed it like just casually like looked at looked at it said sure that looks great but somebody along the line there was smart and should have been able to figure out that hey this might not do what we think it's going to do um and in an email to npr one neurology resident who wanted to be anonymous for fear of losing their job said that the ones who ultimately approve the decision are responsible if this is an oversight even if unintentional it speaks volumes about how the frontline staff and residents are perceived an afterthought only after we've protested there's an utter disconnect between the administrators and the frontline workers this is also reflective that no departmental chair or chief resident was involved in the decision making process so these 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 residents, I think, are probably pretty, um, what's the word? Pretty right. let down. Oh, yeah? well, yeah. No, I mean, I, th- I think they were 100% right in being oh, yeah. angry and in oh, feeling absolutely. forgotten. Uh, and yeah. in, and I don't think uh, they're wrong about that. I think it's a clear sign of how the institution, not all of Stanford, right? But I mean, this medical division or whatever doesn't value them. Right. 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 Yeah. So, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I I get this point of, oh, COVID really impacts older people and younger people have a higher success rate of surviving, but we're using the word surviving and talking about an yeah. illness. And so yeah. it's, it, come on, everybody. And the survival, I was just reading the other day that of the people who are hospitalized, I was reading yesterday, that of the people who are hospitalized for COVID, one in three have to go back to the hospital a few months later. So that's 33% have to go back to the hospital with with res, resulting sequence. What is it? Sequelae. Sequelae. From the disease. Yeah. That's a word. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Wow. Um, They're educating so, us left and right. <laughs> it's a medical word. I don't expect you to know. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to the apology now. Um, I have actually three different apologies that I have found. Um, oh, I bet Three or four different apologies. Yeah, the first one um, was from the president and CEO of Stanford Health, um, David N. Whistle, who actually showed up at the protest bravely and said, um, basically, we got it wrong and we'll correct it. So I, th- I think that was brave. He probably wasn't really welcome there, but maybe um, maybe his being there helped the residents to I feel like a little that. better. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then there was an apology on Twitter, uh, of all places. I personally don't feel that serious organizations should send their messaging out via Twitter, but that's just me. I'm old. Um, and on Twitter, they said, we take complete responsibility for the errors in the execution of a vaccine distribution plan. Our intent was to develop an ethical and equitable process for distribution of the vaccine. We apologize to our entire community, including our residents, fellows, and other frontline care providers who have performed heroically during our pandemic response. We are immediately revising our plan to better sequence the distribution of the vaccine. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> Did you find any other apologies, or is that the one that you found? Oh, uh, no, no. Actually, I didn't find any other apologies. Uh, I found a lot of people that were... uh, Were... Pissed off? Regretful um, about what had happened, but they weren't apologizing specifically uh, to anybody. Right. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, 
let's see here. No, no, there... I think you've covered everything I found. Okay, I found another apology from the Stanford from the Stanford from Stanford's chief medical officer, Dr. Nirai, I think it's Niraj Siegel, um, and he apologized, saying, despite our best intentions to thoughtfully map out a principled vaccine plan to include our residents, fellows, and faculty, it's clear there were several unintended missteps, Siegel said in an email. Please know the perceived lack of priority for residents and fellows was not the intent at all. We're increasingly confident in getting everyone vaccinated, including all of you. He said, and I'm sure he off. didn't say it that way. I'm sure he didn't say it that way, but <laughs> I just had to put that <laughs> spin on it. Um, and then there was a, a longer statement, which I think is the formal official statement from um, Stanford Healthcare, uh, December 19th, the day after the protest from David Entwistle, again, the president and CEO of Stanford Healthcare, and a bunch of other um, presidents and CEOs of Stanford Health This and Health That. And it said, we are writing to acknowledge the significant concerns expressed by our community regarding the development and execution of our vaccine distribution plan. We take complete responsibility and profusely apologize to all of you. We fully recognize we should have acted more swiftly to address the errors that resulted in an outcome we did not anticipate. We are truly sorry. As you know, we formed a committee to ensure the vaccine's equitable distribution. Though our intent was to ensure the development of an ethical process, we recognized that the plan had significant gaps. We also missed the opportunity to keep you more informed throughout this process. We are working quickly to address the flaws in our plan and develop a revised version. As we make corrections to our plan, we will provide continuous communication in an effort to engage our entire community in this process. We are optimistic that a large shipment of vaccines will arrive next week, which will allow us to vaccinate a substantial segment of our community. We recognize the disappointment and distress this has caused, and we appreciate those who brought these concerns to us. We deeply value each and every member of our community and the outsized contributions you make to our mission every day, especially during this particularly challenging year. We take complete responsibility for the errors in the execution of our vaccine distribution plan. Our intent was to develop an ethical and equitable process for distribution of the vaccine. We apologize to our entire community. I think I read this part already. Um, we are immediately revising our plan to better sequence the distribution of the vaccine. And that was the basically the end of that statement from Dr. Um, Entwistle. I'm assuming he's a doctor, although it doesn't say that he is. Um, so what has interested me um, in this fiasco, um, in a sense, was, was described by uh, Dr. Christine Santiago, who was an internal medicine, internal medicine resident, who uh, tweeted, disparities in distribution of the vaccine can be seen at a micro level at Stanford today. I worry that the situation we see at Stanford is a harbinger of population level inequities of vaccine distribution for our underserved communities. And the uh, WHO chief, whose name is Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, shares that worry. Gesundheit. So, huh? Gesundheit. <laughs> In a January 18th article in the UN News, Tedros expressed fear that even as vaccines bring hope to some, they become another brick in the wall of inequality between the world's haves and have-nots. Describing the rapid development of vaccines as a literal and figurative shot in the arm during the pandemic, Tedros reported that while 39 million doses have been administered in nearly 50 richer countries, only 25 have been given in one lowest income nation. I need to be blunt. The world is on the brink of a catastrophic moral failure, and the price of this failure will be paid with lives and livelihoods in the world's poorest countries, he said. So it's a little bit strange to be making the comparison of um, 
Stanford residents who are usually rich as shit um, to the Stanford faculty who are also rich as shit, but even more rich as shit. And the, um, the rich and the poor of the world. But that's kind of the analysis or the analysis, well, the, the um, thing we're drawing here. I forget the word. Analogy? Uh, yeah. I don't yes. know. Stimu- what was the other word the you said before? We're here. I don't know. Sequentiae? <laughs> Sequelae. <laughs> Sequelae? That, it's that word. Yeah. It's sequelae. That word. Yeah. You know, what I'm going to uh, throw out here right now is that that statement really points to the us versus them uh, tension that I see in this episode, right? We have uh, East Coast versus West Coast. We have um, people with money and experience getting vaccinated over people who arguably probably do have money, but have less money and much less experience. So Mm -hmm. they are the air quotes around poor. They are the poor people uh, in this scenario. The less advantaged. It's not new to the world that uh, there are inequities and that the poor who who however you want to define poor right people can right. be emotionally poor in, intellectually poor uh financially poor uh i i'm standing on my soapbox and i'm really admiring the view and uh, <laughs> that's that same it's not going to finish so i'll wave a flag and say <laughs> get me down well, things things are really not great for the poorer countries in the world um, with COVID. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the one lowest income nation, lowest income nation, only got twenty five shots. Um, in the U.S., per Kaiser Health News, Black Americans who are dying of COVID at higher rates than anyone else are well than others are getting vaccinated at lower rates. In Pennsylvania, the percentage of white residents who had gotten their COVID-19 shot as of January 14th was 1.2% versus 0.3% of black residents. Holy moly. Right. So why is this happening? So what it boils down to is is lack of trust and barriers to access. And the CDC says that this includes disparities in health care coverage and health access, disproportionate representation in essential jobs that also that often carry greater virus exposure risk, crowded housing conditions and disparities in income, education and wealth. And the Kaiser Family Foundation published a survey in December, which found additional reasons why people might not want to get vaccines, um, especially black people. The um, Among the 35% of black adults who said they would not get a COVID-19 vaccine, the top reasons cited were 71% concerns about potential side effects, 71% the vaccine's newness and their intent to wait and see how it works for other people, and 58% just didn't trust the government to make sure the vaccine was safe and effective. And you can understand that. I mean, yeah, some of the vaccines that we have distributed in the past were not safe and effective. So um, I think I'm thinking of one in particular, and I can't remember which one it was, but there was one that caused some serious problems. But you know, not not all medicines that the United States has produced or companies in the United States have produced have done what they said they would do or even been safe. So I can't really fault somebody for not being sure they want to go out there and get a vaccine. Um, so other frontline workers at high risk during this pandemic are agricultural, grocery, delivery, and service workers, many of whom are minorities or immigrants, 
And uh, Los Angeles City Council President Nuri Martinez is hoping that those workers receive priority, saying last week, um, as she announced that Dodger Stadium would be a mass vaccination site, that if we don't consider equity, the people who will get the vaccine first are the ones who can work from home and send their kids to private school pods. And that's the truth. I mean, I see um, the people that I know that have been vaccinated, um, even you know, even if they are over 65 and, and meet the criteria, are all white people. I don't think any of the black people I know have been vaccinated. Um, some people I know have been vaccinated have been under 65 and white and not and have jumped the line, so to speak, which makes me mad. But we won't get into that. Um so uh, an opinion in NPR's shot section online noted that in the decades before the polio vaccine became available, the treatment of that disease was segregated. Um, some medical experts even said that African-Americans were just not as susceptible to polio as white patients. And that reminds me of what we were talking about before when we said that um, some, some doctors said that black people didn't feel pain uh, the same as white people, which is shameful, false and outrageous. Um, some medical centers didn't even accept black patients, at least not initially. So, so you're probably asking yourself, why should I care? <laughs> Hopefully you're not asking yourself, why should I care? But, um, <laughs> can you read my mind? <laughs> yeah, a little, <laughs> no. Um, so back in 2011, uh, there was a study in health affairs and the, uh, first author, Bruce Y. Lee found that justice is not the only reason to ensure that poorer countries have the same access to, and he's talking about influenza vaccines as do wealthier ones. So they used a computer simulation model of Washington, D.C., and they found that preventing or limiting vaccinations of um, people in poorer counties would raise the total number of flu infections and the number of new infections per day throughout the area, even in the wealthier counties that had gotten more vaccines. So um, among other underlying reasons, poor counties, did I say countries, I meant counties, uh, tend to have high-density populations, more children, and more high-risk people per household, resulting in more action, interactions and increased transmission of flu and greater risk for worse flu outcomes. Thus, policymakers across the country, whether they are in a poor area or in a wealthier area, they have an incentive to ensure that poorer residents have equal access to vaccines in order to protect everyone. So, you know, there we are with that. Um, there's a little bit of good news I had to sort of add into this because I was getting really depressed as I was reading about all of the COVID news and the various um, inequities and in vaccine uh, distribution. Um, one good news, bit of good news is there's an organization called COVAX. Have you heard of COVAX? I have not. So it is a global initiative with the goal of distributing 2 billion vaccine shots to poorer countries at no cost. So they are... Yeah, so China has said they'll provide 10 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines to COVAX. I personally am hoping that the United States will provide some to COVAX. Apparently, the United States has ordered more than two times as many vaccines th than it needs to vaccinate everybody. So I'm not sure why. Maybe, they're, maybe they ordered some from Pfizer and some from Moderna and some from here and some from there, and they just want to make sure they have enough for everyone, not trusting that the... the um, the supply chain is going to come through with all of the all of the um, companies. I don't know, but hopefully we can give some of those doses to uh, to Covax for uh, poorer countries. 
And uh, President Joe Biden, on his first day in office, signed an executive order meant to ensure equitable vaccine distribution. He has promised to make sure there are vaccination centers in communities hit hardest by the pandemic, such as Black and Latino communities, as well as rural areas. And CNN reports that the Biden administration will begin direct shipments of coronavirus vaccines to retail pharmacies next week. So this program will start relatively small, with about 6,500 stores receiving a total of 1 million doses before eventually expanding. Um, that doesn't really sound that small to me, but that's pretty small considering how many people are in the U.S.? 330 million. million. Like yeah, so that's only a tiny fraction. But um, if you can get the vaccine into all the pharmacies, you can really make a dent. <laughs> Um, and GlaxoSmithKline and a German bioceutical pharma- biopharmaceutical company called CureVac. What? I just had this image <laughs> of ice cream trucks, but they have yeah. vaccine. Vaccines. That's a good idea. And I everybody mean, running would, after taco them. Taco trucks. Taco trucks. Why not? Vaccine trucks. Free taco. I'll tell like you what. Your, if like you put it Costco in. Hot dog. Yeah. Put it in every bar in America. We'd all be. <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, that's see, that's kind of out of the box thinking that we like here in the United States of America. Totally, <laughs> I I live to serve. <laughs> so I was just saying, uh, GSK and CureVac, a, a German biopharmaceutical why can't I say biopharmaceutical company, um, plan to develop a COVID nineteen vaccine that could be available in twenty twenty two, and would address emerging variants. Hi, that's not that now. Said. We need it now. That's. I know. It's coming, though. Well, so Nobody's going to care has, in 2022. That's, I'm going to shut up. Nobody will care, believe me. Moderna is developing a, a shot number three, a booster shot, that will address the variants. So so the bad news is that these variants are here, and they're yep. going to make things just as bad as they were in uh, whatever that month was, November and December, when we had, and January, not, not so long ago, when we had the results of all the people going out for Christmas um, and Thanksgiving. So the the good old uh, SARS CoV two whatever it's called um, is going by the wayside, and the um, the more transmissible vaccine variants vaccine variants um, disease variants yeah. are coming to the fore. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just that thing of uh, we deal with this with bacteria and antibiotics, right? And so an organism and bearing in mind that a virus isn't an organism, it's not alive, but whatever, it's a packet of, of genetic material. Uh, uh, genetic material has one mission in life, and that's to replicate. And right. so, uh, yeah, I think, and mind you, I'm not an epidemiologist. It's really hard to believe, I know, but it's true, mm-hmm. I'm not. Um, with all of the running around that we've been doing in America... I'm sure that there are going to be variants that um, are going to be really successful and will detect, will detect, will avoid detection by our immune systems until it's a little too late. Um, So while I scoffed at uh, a vaccine coming out in 2022, I'll probably be the first one in line to get that vaccine in 2022 because uh, America's a laboratory. It's cooking up a bunch of new variants because freedom. Yeah, someone told me last week, every time the virus replicates, it mutates. Well, so, and that is true, um, but 
bearing in mind that a mutation can simply be the swapping of one just a simple uh, nothing yeah placement yeah exactly but uh so you know within that then then it just starts moving into natural selection one day one of those swaps uh, does something that is super beneficial to the organism and it is able to reproduce and that that specific mutation is what leads to a variant I'm depressed I thought my I thought my internet had frozen I was like oh no but <laughs> instead you were just yeah, depressed my internet has been spotty but now I'm just sitting here yeah <laughs> We're going to be fine. It is going to be fine. It's all going to be great. I promise. Um, they are going to get these vaccines out. I've got people coming to clean out. my house today, and I'm nervous about it. I mean, I, I don't feel... That they're going to steal something? A, I'm always torn. No. <gasps> can't believe you said that. Hey, <laughs> I am um, always nervous that I should not be hiring people to clean my house anyway, that it's not just, that it's a bad idea, that it's inequitable. Um, that blah, blah, blah. And mm. B, um, I don't want to get COVID from these people. Um, these people. I don't want to get COVID from any people. Um, certainly not. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. that. I let into my house. What? <laughs> I got I'm COVID just, from I'm one of my staff. Today. <laughs> uh, I oh hear you on the, on the moral quandary of... Do I hire somebody to come and clean my house? Because um, we don't have anybody now. But yeah. when we were both working and very busy, we did have somebody come in and clean the house. Uh, and yeah. for James, that was a very obvious solution to... It wasn't really a problem, but yeah, yeah to a problem, yeah. right? It's like we're both too busy to really clean the house and, and we live here. Right. We got to do something, right? Um, and yes. I was totally against it. I was like... In my family, we just stayed up until midnight scrubbing the floors. I mean, you just mm -hmm. you just did the work that needed to be done and shut up and you got on with it, right? So that's what we have to do. Um, yeah. But he did explain to me that uh, if we pay a fair rate, then we are allowing somebody who perhaps can't find active employment somewhere uh, an opportunity for employment. And it was an argument that won me over. It was like, yeah. okay, I mean, it, if we're not taking advantage of somebody, right? Yeah. Then it's okay. That's what I tell myself. I, I pay them more than the going rate, and I tip them on top of that. And I try to be nice to them while they're here. I mean, you, you know, try as, as <laughs> nice as I possibly can be, which is, you know, not that nice, really. But <laughs> I'm kidding. Scrub the floor harder. So, so that's that's how I justify it to myself. But I still, I still have concerns about the whole thing. Um, but what I'm but hearing is they... you're not Stanford. Oh, thank you. The, no, because you're not caring about at least how you treat the. Uh, I treat everybody equally around you. Yes. Yeah. So. All right. I'm not Stanford. I'm the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. That's about how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I'm the University of Tallahassee. Tallahassee? I don't know. Is there a university? Uh, university okay. of Florida? Have you even been to Florida? Have I been to Florida? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to play what university are you because uh, I can't think of any. You're too many. Too I'm many too many. I'm, I'm a multitude. Yeah, that's right. I'm a segui. What was that word? Sequelae. Sequelae. So yes. A series of things in sequence? It's it's a, a an outcome, sort of, a, a, something that follows on from something else. Okay. All right. So it's so, a yeah. component in a sequence? Not a component, but it's like if, if you if you get COVID-19 mm-hmm. and you're in the hospital and you've got um, um, all this shit going on and you are eventually released, mm-hmm. but you end up with kidney disease, the kidney disease is a sequelae of your COVID-19, of your initial admission for COVID-19. Oh, okay. All right. So it's a medical term for consequence. It's kind of a consequence. It's kind of a result. Kind of, yeah. Kind of, okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll never use it again, but... Uh, you might. You never know. It took me a long time I've to unlearn octopi, so... <laughs> so what did you send me in the mail? <laughs> <laughs> you really you don't want to hear the word octopuses? <laughs> Which apparently is the proper way to say plural. No, of it's one. not, is it? It is because it's a Greek word and the Greek uh, plurals don't end in I. Octopus? Octopus Octo. and octopus says. Wouldn't it be like octopodes or something? Oh, te- well, yes. Technically, technically. Okay. That is exactly what it should be. It should be octopodes, okay. right? But okay. octopuses, so octopuses, I think, is the. <laughs> Is the, and this isn't me because I say octopi. And, and I, I say octopus, plural. You say octopuses? A bunch of octopus. That's a cheat. That's a cheat. <laughs> You're not allowed to do that. It, um, how are we on plurals of things? <laughs> I, don't I don't know. Well, okay. So let's uh, focus. <laughs> Sequelae. Right. Okay. Um, I'm just going to say the plural of fruit drives me insane. It shouldn't be a word. Fruits? Fruits. I just make my... You should be a word? I, I am from a family where there are some very specific grammar rules. And one of those rules is around plurals. And yeah. so fish is fish. fish. There is not fishes. Um, Wait a minute. There are fishes. There are fish. If you have different different have species, different right. species of I, fishes. Intellectually, yeah. I know that. Emotionally, and my mother would have a bar of soap and be running for you right now um, if she heard <laughs> you say fishes. Look at all the fishes. No, look at all the, the fish. Um, fruits. I can't think. It to me, it's like if somebody said sheep's. <laughs> look at all the sheep's. <laughs> so many sheep in that awesome. field. <laughs> It's just wrong. It's so fit. <laughs> and so is octopuses. It is octopi. <laughs> it's octopodes. <laughs> I'm going to, I actually am going to a community meeting tonight and I'm going to find a way to use octopodes. You should. You I'm should. going to. And then and I'll let you know the feedback fun. I get. The what? Octo what? Yeah. Um, so where are you going to go first when all this is over? Oh, um, the minute I am vaccinated after I complete residency at Stanford, I am going to, um, I think I'm going to go to the East Coast 
and do a really? drive down, visit some family, um, and then visit some friends. So Pennsylvania, Delaware, D.C., North Carolina, and then uh, back to Austin, and then I'll have done it. Um, yeah, and then maybe come out and visit you uh, and do a yes. California thing. Um, cool. Yep. And so, yeah. And I know you've been talking about Moscow. Definitely. Moscow and St. Petersburg now. Oh, you're so going to go back? There. I'm going to go back. I want to I want to I want to see it again. I, when I was there before, I was there with with Randy and that was kind of no fun. It was fun to be there, but it was not fun to be there with him. So it was like right before we broke up. Um Oh. And I want to I want to go and have a good time. So Fair. That's what I'm going to do. Fair enough. Um there's a train, there's the Vodka train and I forget the name of it, but it's the old the Oriented train? Express. Oh yeah. No, I'd like to do that. Yeah, and it's supposed to be like a, a five-star experience, etc. Um, I I don't like trains, but I think that might be fun. I believe it yeah. ends in Istanbul at the Agatha Christie Hotel, which is insanely beautiful. Is it? Very 1920s. Did you stay there? No, uh, but we, uh, we had drinks there and... I spent about three hours walking around the hotel with my phone, just video recording every, wow. every, everything, right? Wow. Uh, not opulent, just tasteful. Why am I nice. talking about this? It's fascinating. To me. It's exactly what I want to hear <laughs> right now after, <laughs> after all the bad vaccine news. I want to hear that there's another world out there where one day we might be allowed to go again. There's another world out there, and for some people, that world never went away. Uh, they're walking around yeah, without apparently. masks, and they're they're going places. There is a thing about like the gaze of Acapulco. Uh, so a group of people went to one of those big circuit parties, and it took place in Acapulco. And there was somebody mm-hmm. released a an Instagram shot or whatever, and it's a bunch of people in speedos and no masks, right? Mm-hmm. And there must be like. I don't know, thousand people. Wow. Right. And they're all outside in a pool area and holding drinks. And it looks just like the old days. Uh, and so there was a lot of uh, shaming that happened around that online um, yeah. of you should be there and you're bad people and blah, blah, blah. And so um, if you if you want a laugh, Google something like the gaze of Acapulco, and then just be real careful about the links you click. Um, (laughs) And a friend and I had an argument about this because he was very much like, uh, that's shaming and that's doxing and you shouldn't be, you know, blah, blah, blah. When I was like, you shouldn't be traveling in a pandemic and hanging out with 5,000 people. People get to live with the consequences of their actions, um, behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And some people in America... Didn't get that message, but they're learning. No. Mm. And hi, Republican Party, I'm looking at you. Yeah, really. I'm so glad that some of those people are finally experiencing some consequences, if not the consequences that they should be experiencing, which is instant death. Just as a culture, as long as we can keep this concept of there need to be consequences for actions, we'll be okay. It, Whoever thought the Democratic Party would be the one talking about the consequences of your actions? I did. It seems such like, like such an old Republican thing to be talking about, doesn't it? 
Like my, oh. something my dad would have said to me, your, your actions have consequences, Missy. Oh, Jesus Christ. If I heard that, except without the Missy. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All, All right. right. Jinx. Well, Jinx? Yeah, Jinx. Jinx. Thanks, everyone, for listening to us. Are we done? We are not, because there's Who's Sorry Now. Do you have an apology this week? Oh, Give me five minutes to think about it. This is our podcast. I do. Um, And so uh, going back to having apologies at the end of our shows, uh, we didn't have one, I think, the last two. And there was some disappointment around that. Um, So my uh, keeping it in theme, my apologies around Stanford. And so I, uh, I mentioned I dated a guy from Stanford and he had... Who was that? Oh, it was this guy named Dan. Um... And weirdly, oh, yeah, he's come up a lot and yeah. for apologies, Interesting. right? And it, yeah. it says a lot about the year that we hung out. Because I was dating, yeah. not dating, right? I was 24, he was 40. Like, yeah. what is that? That's nothing, right? Um, but it was fun. He was a great guy. And so he had a baby grand piano. And mm-hmm. he told me that he'd written a song for me. And the song was called wow. Saturday Night. And because wow. uh, we would uh, meet Hang on out Saturday. On Saturday night. Right? right. I had a part time job in a bookstore and I would drive up to LA on Saturdays to work in the shop. And then I would go mm-hmm. and spend Saturday nights with Dan. Right. And so the song was called Saturday Night. And I, uh, I would, I hate to embarrass myself this way, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. I would lie down under the baby grand piano while he played because I thought that was so cool. Mm-hmm. I was always like, how many people have ever laid under a baby grand piano and felt the percussion of the strings yeah. being hit? Yeah. Right? That's cool. It was it was very cool. I thought it was great. And I wasn't drunk or stoned. That was that's yeah, ha- me being a normal thinker for me. Yeah. Um yeah. So anyway, fast forward, Dan had a party and one of his ex-boyfriends was there. And it turns out Dan had not written a song for me. He had recorded to this guy. And it just came up that the guy was like, and I don't remember the guy's name, was like, oh, Dan's really amazing. You're going to really enjoy being with him or whatever. And I was like, okay, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, he wrote a song for me and it's called Saturday Night. And I just really, and I was like, oh. No, my God. Okay. Um, And I didn't mention anything because I knew Dan hadn't written a fucking song for me. (laughs) I don't even know if he wrote the song. I mean, why why would he lie about it, right? Yeah, he might not have. (laughs) I'm just going to say that um, uh, Dan owes me an apology for thinking I'm the sort of person who would be impressed he wrote a song for me? No, we're feeling the need to lie that the song was for me or whatever. But like, I'm just impressed he could play the piano. I thought he was dead. He is. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I guess he can't apologize to you then, but he still owes you one. Yeah, exactly. Forever. Okay. For all of eternity, I will just be waiting for this apology. Um Ha, 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 jokes on you. Wait until I'm dead. He comes rushing out of heaven. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's right. I've learned so much. Hell. I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was I was wondering about heaven and hell this morning when I was walking my dog. 
Because <laughs> I was thinking. This In the is reality stupid. of or. Yeah, well, well, yeah, and I was wondering if, you know, if, if let's just say, for example, that every time you, um, well, the people who don't pick up their dog's poop go to hell, right? Like, if they make a habit of it. <laughs> I mean, define habit? <laughs> More than 40,000 times, or? It may be different in different areas, but in the city, if you don't pick up your dog's poop regularly, you, you go to hell. And then I was thinking, well, what if you, what if it's four o'clock, because it was four o'clock in the morning. What if it's four o'clock in the morning and your dog poops and it's dark and you can't find it? Are you going to go to hell then? I don't know. These are the things I think about while walking my dog, so. Humble brag. I uh, lived in a neighborhood where people had a lot of yards and there wasn't a sidewalk, but it was a nice neighborhood and lots of trees. And I would take my dog for a walk. And Mm -hmm. one day, uh, my dog, who never pooed on the leash, um, did, right? Wow. In a neighbor's yard. And I didn't have a baggie with me because, like, it never happened. Like, years and years and years of daily life. It never happened. There's one time it happened. I didn't have a bag. And uh, so I took him, um, I took him home, and I couldn't find any bags at all, <laughs> at all. I couldn't even find a grocery bag, right? Oh my god! I throw shit away because I'm really organized. Like, yeah. No purpose. Yeah. Don't need it. Done. So I had to go yeah. back and scoop it up with my hands. <gasps> and you know what makes me so mad right now as I tell this story? I could have gone to my car and driven to a store and bought a bag. You could have. But no. Oh, my God. I can't believe you. I'm going to throw up. I can't believe you picked that dog poop with your hands. (laughs) And here's here's the reason. Okay. So I have to explain just a little bit more. So the the yard where the offense occurred was very (laughs) close to my house. Right? Right, right, right. And I didn't know if my neighbors were home, not home, had a camera. Probably. And I needed to make sure that there was a short window in time where people would see it happen and then really quickly see me come back. So could I have grabbed a suitcase and figured out a way to get the poo into the suitcase and all? Yes. (laughs) That would have been funny. I would pay to see that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it was just that panic thing of like... Oh my God, my neighbors are going to think I'm that person and I'm not that person. And I've got like less than two minutes to get my dog home because why couldn't I have picked it up and get a bag? And then, ah, oh, there's no bag. And then I got to get back. Oh my God, I have to, I have to fix this. <laughs> Hand. Yeah, I have not picked up my dog's poop um, because I did not have a bag, an extra bag. Like, sometimes she'll poop three times and I'll only have two bags or whatever. And the third time will be the time that a cyclist rides by and shouts at me for not picking up my dog's poop. They're this real happens. preachy in San Francisco, I've noticed. They, they, they are. Yeah. Yeah. The only time I've ever had a pedestrian um, lecture me was in San mm-hmm. Francisco. I believe it. What were you doing? Driving through a red light. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I probably would lecture you. No, I just stopped a little short into the crosswalk. And in L.A., we don't have pedestrians. So the crosswalk is really where you put your car's front tires. Right. And in San Francisco, no, you're supposed to not be anywhere near that line. And then you are supposed to, like, applaud people for walking. You're a hero. Yeah. You're a hero. Yeah. 
And they just walk right out into the middle of the street, too. It's terrible. I'm afraid to drive here practically because it's like the, people just come from everywhere. And I'm going to hit one one day, and that'll be the end of me. And is did I miss your apology? No. I, I, I could say that this company that I'm interviewing with owes me an apology because they, um, they treated me so sillily about the the what the salary negotiation yeah the negotiations so i think that's really the only apology i have this week um i think i've been perfect fair enough because it circles back to the whole point of the show which was not about dog poop or octopods it was about (laughs) unfair treatment of valuable staff yes absolutely so once again the show is all about us (laughs) <laughs> we are the valuable staff this show is about. The valuable staff saying thank you to our valuable listeners for thank putting you. up with our silliness and enjoying the show. Hopefully. Hopefully. And write to us. We are at octopodsanonymous.com. <laughs> What's our email address? Do we know? Oh, uh, well, uh, let's see. Uh, we have an email for Theo at ApologiesAccepted.net. Uh, but more importantly, you could just go to ApologiesAccepted.net. And uh, there's a form there for you to give us an apology or not. Tell us about an apology, one you've received, one you want to make. Complain about our rambling. Um, whatever you like, the form is there for you. Just make sure it's spelled correctly. Or you will be mocked mercilessly. And use the right words. Yeah. Right. Speaking as somebody who doesn't use words. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're leaving. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. listening to Apologies Accepted, the podcast. You can find links to the articles and the sources in the show notes. To submit an apology or find out more, visit us at ApologiesAccepted.net, where you can also find our merchandise. We're on Twitter at Apologies Accepted. And on Instagram at Apologies.Accepted. You can support our important work at Patreon forward slash Apologies Accepted. And fuck Facebook. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>